Welcome to the Inside the WDF podcast. And we're here at the home of a world dance for the Lakeside. There may not have been a BDO World Championship this year for the first time since 1978, but the tournament still holds fond memories for a lot of people. And I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about some of those fond memories over the years with the, the former BDO Master of Ceremonies, Mr Richard Ashdown. How are you, Richard? Hello, Andrew. Yes, I'm very well. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Looking back, what was the first year you remember watching the Lakeside World Championship? Hmm, I think my earliest memory was 1988 or 1989. Sort of, I would have been around 10 at that time. Uh, Bob Anderson being the champion and I do remember watching uh, the latter stages of 89 when Jockey beat Eric in that great final so around that time I would say and did you ever go there as a fan I know you then worked there in later years yeah I mean I, I loved it so, into the early 90s uh, some of the classic moments in the early 90s got me completely hooked I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that later but my first time at the lakeside was 1994 I pestered my parents for tickets so I first attended the Lakeside aged 15 in 1994. And what memories stand out from being there in that tournament? I still remember walking in on the first day because we were slightly late. So that was frustrating. So I remember walking in and there was a match already in play. So my first reaction was literally the Lakeside you see on the TV. I, I didn't get any of the warm-up, any of the settling into it. I walked in and I'm hearing big schools called out the atmosphere of the room and I loved it I think my first very first impression which most people get when they go there is oh it's smaller than it looks on the TV <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a very tight atmosphere low ceiling everybody huddled together so uh, that was my enduring memory when I first walked in but the tickets we had we were nearly front row I mean I sat right in front of the stage for the couple of days I was there for the first time and naturally fell in love with it those early, you know, those years you were starting to watch in the early 90s, there were some great games in those years. Which ones were the ones that really hooked you on the sport? I think the, the, the Phil Taylor-Mike Gregory final would be, that has to be the standout for me. Watching it so close, so exciting. I think from that point on, I decided dance was my thing. I, I was playing, there was a board propped up, you know, in, in the spare room that my mum and dad had. And I was, that was it. I fell in love with it at that point. And in 1993, I actually recorded the whole of the championship. So that became my first collection on VHS, watching it over and over again. And that was the point where I asked my parents, please, can you take me to Lakeside the following year? And do you remember who were playing in that first game that you, you got there a little bit late for? Yeah, Roland Shelton and Sean Palfrey. Second session I was there, I saw Bobby George play for the first time. So that was the first time I really experienced Lakeside to the max in terms of the atmosphere and the uh, and the whole crowd participation sort of side of it. You started working there in, in 2002 and you mentioned Bobby George there. I know he was hugely influential in you getting that, that job as a spotter. Yeah, well, following seeing him in 94... He became my favourite player if he wasn't already from 93. 
And again, you know, as teenagers do, you're quite demanding with your parents for saying you want to do this, that. And they took me to an exhibition in Newmarket to see Bobby. And from meeting him the first time, we had a really good connection. He loved the fact of how passionate I was about it and also how well I knew the numbers. It was the numbers thing that really struck Bobby along with the enthusiasm. So he knew very early on that I had the skills and the memory of the of the players and the numbers. So he mentioned this thing called spotting to me. I didn't really know what it was. And he said, oh, you'd be great doing the spotting, telling the cameras. And I was like, oh, OK. I, I didn't think anything of it. I attended Lakeside for eight years as a fan. The very last time I was sat in the seat as a fan was the opening day of 2002. Bobby George, ironically, playing his last ever match in the World Championship against Raymond Van Barneveld in the first round. How about that? <laughs> so you can imagine the atmosphere in there with all the Dutch going crazy and all of the rest of us cheering for Bobby. It was amazing. But what wasn't amazing was the camera work. It was terrible. I walked up to Bobby after that match to try and get a photo with him when he came back out into the audience. And he kind of was, I can't repeat on this interview the words he used when he saw me. <laughs> but he's like, oh, I, I, mean, I needed your phone number. I've been, I wanted to get hold of you. We need help with the spotting. So he kind of came out of the blue. I, I'd only met him about three times before that. We've kept in touch via email or, or mail. But suddenly I was plunged from fan. The following day, I was led up to the commentary box with Tony Green and John Parr, and I was spotting the matches. So I literally went overnight from fan to spotter. I was just standing in for another guy that was away from the event who was usually spotting. I was literally just a stand-in for the day. I never left the seat. I did it from then on. And how did that first session as a spotter go? Oh, I loved it. But I had no teacher. That was the, probably the good thing for me. They just told me, the cameras need to know where the players are throwing. The director needs to know if they're up or down. We need to know if they're on a finish. All those kind of things. So I just invented a language that I still use to this day with the way I spot. Regarding losing the split, the ups and the downs, back to you know, the split screen I'm talking about. You have a split screen when the players are scoring, but you come off the split when they're not scoring. Yeah. So things like that. I just say, last three, meaning it's the last three on the split, and then we're going to leave the split. It's just something I did from that day to now. Uh, I, I was thrilled. I was 100%. It's the only thing in my life involving darts and not involving darts that I've ever been 100% confident about doing. I was determined to do it right and passionate about doing it right, and that's why I was so good at the job. And how did that different position change your sort of enjoyment of the matches? Because obviously you're focusing in a, in a different way. Oh, I loved it just as a statement. I was still recording everything on VHS and watching it back all year. Well, of course, refereeing is the best seat in the house because you're on stage and with the players. But from the spotting perspective, and someone that's so into the sport, you're amongst everything. You're, you're hearing all the backstage direction and working with such a brilliant crew. And literally kind of steering, you're flying the plane, so to speak. You, you, the director is so reliant on what the spotter says. The director, the buck stops with the director. And I've worked with some of the very best there are. But... I'm their wingman. I'm the person saying where the player's going to throw, and you have to get it right. You're on, you know, I've spotted games like away from Lakeside, such as the World Masters final between Tony West and Raymond Van Barneveld, and you're hanging from. You, you absolutely, <laughs> you have to be lightning quick. When Michael Van Gerwen first came into the game, I was spotting his. So that whole spotting side is a completely different skill to anything else I've ever done on the stage. I'm probably more known for what I do on stage, but the spotting work is 
so intense, but I absolutely love it, as you can tell by the way I describe it now. I still, to this day, it's the number one job for me, spotting. And which game from, from 2002 sticks in your memory the most? I'm not sure I have one. I just remember the whole story of there was a lot of comebacks that week in, in, in matches. Whether the person that came back won or lost, every game I spotted seemed to go from 4-1 to 4-4, you know, from 5-2 to 5-5. Even the final, the Tony David won, he was 5-1 up, and Mervyn got back to 5-4. Uh, that's what I remember about it, just the constant excitement in all the matches. There were so many good games. And, of course, the story of Tony David is a relative unknown, winning it, you know, the Australian. So that, that, that's what I really remember. And just the atmosphere from that position, as I say, just the intensity of it. Um, walking out of that commentary box after spotting a great match and just listening to the audience and the music. And that, that's what sticks in my mind, if I think back. I mean, over the next decade, you, you were in that spotter's chair for Lakeside year in, year out. I mean, you saw basically everything on that stage. You saw, you saw Raymond van Barneveld's last lakeside. You saw the sort of Dutch invasion of younger guys coming and winning, like Jelle Klassen, and obviously uh-huh. saw that first world title for Martin Adams as well. Yeah, that was those two finals, those six, oh seven. they were thrilling. I mean, the speed I mentioned before, you have Klassen and Barneveld, and the atmosphere in the room, the, the, the double Dutch final, um, fantastic. And then the following year, I was going to mention at some point, there was no way we were going to finish this conversation without mentioning Nixie and and Martin Adams in that final. From 6-0 to 6-6, I mean, the, the, the drama of that game was absolutely unbeatable. Absolutely. From a work perspective, as much as a viewing perspective, because we're all ready to wrap up all the time. We could hear, I could hear the director sort of getting raised thumbs on Bobby George into position. No, sit down, gents, another set. <laughs> Just constantly. The presentation party being lined up for six or seven sets in a row. <laughs> as the match went from 6-0 to 6-6. Superb. I mean, that that's the game that got me hooked on the darts. That was the first game I sort of seen all the way through. And I think it was that drama of Phil Nixon from somewhere finding his best form and getting almost all the way back before Martin finally got over the line, which was a moment in and of itself because he'd been trying for so long. It was, and it was reminiscent of the 1989 final because the same thing happened. You know, as a kid watching that, of Jockey Wilson being 5 nil up and Eric back almost to 5-5, a leg away from 5-5. So to see that happen, but you're right, of all people for it to happen to, Martin Adams. For him to be the one that was 6 nil up and then be clawed back to 6-6. Six, six. He'd suffered a... Uh, it may be a question you were going to ask me anyway, but I'll, I'll have to answer it in advance. Of The best match I watched live was Martin Adams against Chris Mason mm. in the quarterfinals of 1999. And Martin Adams suffered a defeat from 4-1 up, lost 5-4, in an absolute classic. So I, I'm sure Martin had those hang-ups during that game. And, and to his credit, the first leg he played in that final set of the final going out in 12 darts against the darts is the best leg of darts that man's ever played because if he and and Nixie missed a dart a double 16 to win that first leg in 12 himself Martin Adams to to do what he did after losing six sets straight to play such a great last set Hmm. yeah all credit to the man brilliant and I mean 2014 you were in a, a different job you know you were doing the you were as your role as the master of ceremonies for the BDO that wasn't your first major in the role. You'd done the, the World Masters the year before. But what were your nerves like for that first session as Master of Ceremonies in 2014? 
I mean, we could do an entire chat regarding this topic alone. It's very hard to sum up in a in a short chat. Through Bobby, I've been given experience doing exhibitions, then working for England. You know, from that 2002 year of spotting, the, the, the 12 years I'd gained a lot of stage experience, but nothing prepared me for Lakeside. I was fortunate, as you've mentioned, to do the World Masters and the Zododan Masters in the autumn and winter leading into the Lakeside, so that did help me settle. But there's no feeling there'll never be a greater moment for me in my career. And it was seven years ago yesterday that I walked on that stage as a Lakeside host. 20 years after I attended it as a fan. that I can't even put into words how that felt. Because the fan in me is still the same. So I'm the one in the suit, the bow tie, holding the mic. Basically talking to 1,200 people who are me. You know, I'm talking to the audience, I'm talking to the dance fans, I'm talking to the people that love the lakeside and want to cheer everyone on. That's me as well. I'm just the one on stage delivering it. And we got a question in on Twitter from your, you know, your team ref colleague, Nick Rolls, who said, what was strange about the first game you were MC for between Scott Waits and Alan Norris in 2014? I... I try to follow the, the Martin Fitzmaurice tradition of, as Martin always did as MC, but he was also a great referee. And Martin used to open the tournament as a referee. And I said to the referees beforehand, I'd love to referee the first game. And they're all like, go for it, it'd be great. So I refereed Alan Norris against Scott Waits, the defending champion. The first leg plays out. Alan Norris requires 72, he hits a 16, he hits a treble 16, it leaves double four. And as any referee will tell you, you only sort of glance at the double, just as you would as a spotter, at the moment, you know, they're about to throw at it. And at that moment, I realised the number four on the dartboard was completely missing. <laughs> <laughs> so my very first leg called at Lakeside in 2014 was... The double four that wasn't because there was no four. And Alan Norris immediately responds as well. It's quite a funny clip if anyone looks at it. And Alan almost saying to me, even though he's in the double, I say game shot. And he's like, no, it's not. And we sort of laugh and like reference the fact that the four's missing. So I signal to the second referee, try and say, we need a number ring. We played the set out and then changed the number ring. By that point. Andrew, I must say, I dreamt up, you can imagine, a hundred different things that could go wrong <laughs> on, my on my first day including a power cut which happened before that Norris and Waits match. The whole of the whole grid was off before that match. Once the power came up we then did that game. I dreamt up all those scenarios. I didn't imagine I'd be calling game shot with a number missing from the dartboard. <laughs> By that point you'd been at Lakeside in some capacity for two decades, as you said, ten years almost as a fan and then sort of, you know, twelve years as a spotter or, you know, yeah. the MC. What was it, in your view, that made the venue so special for fans and players? I do believe a lot of what makes it special is what's gone before. I think that with any iconic sports venue, what makes it magical is what's already happened there. So I think with every year that went on with Lakeside, you've just got more and more memories and magic to draw on. And that was the feeling I got. When I first attended, when I first was a spotter, and then when I was first an MC, it was always reflection of the great moments that have been and the opportunity to create more. 
when I arrived there, I was pretty certain that the star of the show, and that's with no disrespect to the players involved, but the star of the show was the lakeside. And I was always keen to portray that and to try and bring that home to people. Just a magical place to play darts. I don't it's cliche about, you know, where dreams come true or, you know, the end of the yellow brick road. It's that kind of thing for players. It's, it's, it's often the starting place, the birthplace of a career. I think that's what that that's what it brings. Hmm. Another Twitter question from the weekly Darts Cast. They wanted to know whether the you know, your iconic intro, Welcome to the Home of World Darts, the Lakeside. Did that intro come in from the beginning or is there a story behind that? Well, as I mentioned about the Lakeside being the star of the show, I think that was my um, thought process behind it. But I didn't actually intend for it to become a catchphrase. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know something. There was a conversation I had with Bob Potter, the Lakeside proprietor, our sponsor, of course, who said to me, it's going to be interesting when you say let's play darts tomorrow. And I said, I'm not saying let's play darts. And he said, well, you have to. It's the show. You have to say let's play darts. That's the catchphrase. And I said, no, it's Martin Fitzmaurice's catchphrase and I need to be myself. If I replaced Bruce Forsyth on a game show, I wouldn't say nice to see you to see you. <laughs> it's Martin's catchphrase. Let's play darts belongs to him. I need to do my own thing. And I said to Bob, I think you'll be happy with what I have to say. So all I had in mind in my intro that I'd kind of rehearsed in my own mind was that I would be referencing the fact that we were at the home of World Arts, the lakeside. What seems to have happened by nature <laughs> is the lakeside seems to have more vowels added with each and every match and each and every year that I've done. But it wasn't intentional. It's just if I ever look back or someone shares a clip of a match from 2014 the lakeside shout is far more prominent in 2017 <laughs> you see what i mean it just it just got more and more it'd be, and then it became a case of i would be walking through the car park or through the venue and people are going the lakeside people are saying it to me so it just kind of became a thing i i, I would be lying if i said i intended it to become a catchphrase at the start i didn't i just wanted to sell the venue sell the sponsor in the introduction did you feel a sense of pressure in a way because martin fitzmorris had been in that role for such a long time oh enormous pressure unbelievable he was all i knew as well remember i mean every event i've been to he hosted and i came into the job very quickly there was no pre-designed thing that i was coming in at any point as a replacement martin fitzmorris resigned in the middle of 2013 and suddenly it was thrust upon me. So the pressure was huge. But nobody put more pressure on me than me. Because, as I've said before, it just, I think it means more to me than anybody else. <laughs> so, uh, so I was the one that I had to live up to. It was almost my own standards that I had to, to get right. And all I wanted to do was be myself. And if I mean it and I care about it, I think I do it well. And that, that was all I said to myself. Hmm. So every intro is with care. I, I'm always concise with what I say about a player. I want to make every player feel good that walks on the stage. I want to make the audience feel like they're part of it. I always say we. It's never an I thing or a they thing. It's a we introduce. That hmm. I always felt that way. To get the crowd up, we are going to bring the player on. I don't look down the camera lens. I look at the audience. It's always been the way I did it at Lakeside. Rightly or wrongly, 
there's always a kind of, I could have stood in the middle of the audience and introduced the player. That's, that was my mindset. Hmm. I'm, with the, I'm with the fans. And I think it was a couple of years after 2014, you know, there was the formation of the, the team ref group with yourself, Nick Rolls, Marco Meyer, Anthony Dunderson and Charlie Corstefine. How much did they, you know, add to the whole experience and memories of it for you? Massively. I think they're, I think they're the number one best thing about the job I've done there. Uh, I was very lucky in that point I came in. I could have worked with guys that either weren't very nice or weren't very good. I had the opposite. I had a talented team of referees and officials around it as well. I mean, before I mention the, 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 the team ref group as such, we were aided by two expert scorers for every single match in Colin McClements and uh, Cliff Murray from Scotland. So that made our job on stage seamless. We also were aided by the very experienced Rab Butler as our players' marshal. He fitted into that job perfectly for us because he'd refereed for so many years himself. He knew all the players and he was a, a very much a guiding figure f- for the rest of the referees. So that really helped. Wayne Williams was a brilliant tournament director. So the team around us made everything tick. The referees themselves, you, you mentioned Charlie, but before Charlie was Hugh Ware. So in Nick, Anthony, Marco and Hugh, I had the best possible team I could have, knowing I could send four guys up on the stage, regardless of what match they were doing, a prelim or a final, they were immaculate. And their confidence and the camaraderie breeds that amongst the team. You go three or four days without a mistake, it makes you more confident. But if anyone does slip up or anyone is feeling low or nervous, the rest of the team back them up. So I fitted into that perfectly. Remember, I've been the spotter there all that time. So I knew the referees really well. I was kind of a, a bit of a mentor to Marco and Hugh and Anthony when they were refereeing a couple of years before, when they started, and I was the spotter. But I was still there giving them advice, and so I became that kind of team leader naturally. Hmm. It, it wasn't overnight. It, it came over a period of time. So I'm glad you've asked me about them because I, I, I wouldn't have got through, especially my first year, without their backing. So... Um, and Hugh did for the first three years with me. And then, as you mentioned, Charlie came in. And when Hugh left, we were thinking, my goodness, the team's broken. I used to reference those guys as four points on a compass. You know, they, they were, collectively, they were, you know, they grounded me. They were my support network. So when Hugh left, it was a, a piece missing. When Charlie came in, absolutely fantastic as well. So I've been very lucky to work with those five referees and the team I've mentioned around us. Looking back to 2014, something interesting about that tournament was the addition of the international qualifiers. What did you feel that they added to the the tournament, aside from an increased field? Well, I I was actually part of that process in the discussions with the BDO prior to me being the MC. Ironically, Wayne and Sue Williams had asked for my opinion on the whole situation with that and forming the regions, and it's something that I've actually carried through with the WDF. So I think it was a great thing. I think it was really important. Oh, I remember introducing Hiroaki Shimizu from Japan. He became like our Mr. Miyagi. He did the, the karate kid pose on the stage. I believe that dance fans just embrace the players from around the world, knowing they've travelled so far, and want to give them that extra support. So it was a great addition, I, I think. It made it difficult for me doing all the introductions because there were far more names to do. We had double sessions every single day, which weren't there before. So when I came in, the very year I started, we had eight more men, eight more women, 
and it just made the whole event bigger and better. But yeah, I definitely think it was an improvement to the lakeside for sure. And obviously with more players, a little bit more work for you to do as well. What was the process of getting to know the players and also mastering the art that you perfected just now of pronouncing their names correctly? Well, it is in the preparation. I mean, I, I used to help a lot compiling the profiles for the programme. So I was always in touch with the players through December. As soon as any player qualified at the World Masters, I would speak to them immediately and make sure that I was in touch with them in that regard. Um, the name, it's actually a very... It's a funny thing that people say, how do you pronounce a player's name correctly? And I always give a very simple answer and say, well, walk up to them and ask them how they say it. It isn't as complicated as people think. It amazes me the amount of commentators or, or anyone else working in sport, not just darts, that say a player's name wrong when you have the opportunity, like you do in darts, to walk up to them and ask them how they say it. So that's how I've always done it. <laughs> if my enunciation is wrong, that's my problem, but I, I try and pronounce it correctly. So... Um, uh, and the stats is a more of a natural thing for me. I, people know I'm quite encyclopedic with the stats, so I make sure I give the one or two bullet points that profiles them the best. And I have a little secret, you may have spotted it on stage, but I have a tiny cue card at all times in my hand. I very rarely read it, but it's there as my safety blanket. Hmm. So if I lock up when I'm introducing a brand new player, or just forget the, the, the line I'm going to give, it's just in the palm of my hand to glance at but hmm. most of the time I managed to do it without looking. Well, I have to say that the introduction of the international qualifiers certainly gave me one of my favourite lakeside memories from recent years, and that was uh, Peter Saiwani beating James Wilson and then oh, his interview no. where he was talking about, you know, a gorilla putting a golf ball. And I thought you were going to mention, when you mentioned him, he gave me like, the biggest kiss I've ever received on that stage. At, at the end of that game, he grabbed my cheeks and just kissed me on the face. I, I, there's nothing I could do about it. <laughs> that's what I thought you were going to mention so I definitely remember him yeah <laughs> and obviously you had that incident with him kissing you one thing I did want to ask did any players ever speak to you about nerves when they came out lots lots of players Fallon Sheriff I always remember each and every game just kind of muttering to me something like I'm nervous or what should I do like it's almost like a, oh my or, oh my goodness was often a reaction like the crowd are going crazier than they've ever heard and there's kind of like a wow about it. Definitely. Again, if you look closely, you often see a player say a few words. All we, all we ever say, myself and the referees, is all the best. Or, you know, you wish them something positive. But, yeah, often the players speak to you back, yeah. And are there any other Siwani-esque stories from the stage? Oh, my goodness, there are so many, aren't there? I mean, <laughs> well... Well, I've lost count of the amount of times I've been patted on the head. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, an intro that everybody was very familiar with was Daryl Fitton walking on and kind of do doing the dance up to me. And the first time he ever did that, he nearly knocked me over. <laughs> so from then on, I had to brace myself for it. I didn't realise quite the impact that he would charge at me. So that that's always a fond memory. Martin Adams always makes me laugh because his walk on, he's always laughing. So he walks towards me just with that beaming smile and, and the laugh and it just instantly makes you laugh even though no one has any idea what the joke is <laughs> <laughs> but that's always great fun oh there's so many Andrew I mean I was lucky enough in my six years only one year of those six as the MC Ted Hankey qualified I think it was 2016 so that was a thrill for me because I never got the opportunity before or since to introduce Ted at the lakeside so I thoroughly enjoyed that moment and the music and the bass kind of going through us. It's hard to 
put over to anybody that hasn't been there. But it's so loud when you introduce the players and the music. It goes through you on the stage. So that Ted Hankey, you know, that, that noise just goes through your body. Fantastic. And you mentioned the walk-ons. What's your favourite walk-on from over the years, either as, you know, spotter, MC or fan? Because when I first saw him in 1994, no one else did a walk-on. They just used to introduce the players and they'd walk out of the side door and there's the ripple of applause. <laughs> so when Bobby put the cloak and the candles, people forget that, that he kind of just said, well, how about play a song when I walk on? No one did that in any tournament. He invented a walk-on. It's now something that we... It's almost the first thing you tick off, isn't it, when you play on a TV dance match? What's your walk-on music? But no one did walk-ons. They just said their name. It was from England, Mike Gregory, and you'd all do a round of applause. But Bobby, with the cloak and the candles, walked out to music, and in the end it became We Are The Champions. I think around 1998 you went to We Are The Champions. So that is the iconic walk-on, the walk-on of walk-ons, the king of walk-ons. <laughs> but through the years, we all have out whether it's a favourite song or a favourite player. I love we're all going to mention the same one, aren't we? Tony O'Shea. It's, it's not just the song that is catchy, but it's the audience. Yeah. So whether you're in the audience or on stage, Hey Baby's always a brilliant one, and he just delivers it so well, doesn't he? Um, but the iconic ones, such as Martin Adams, that, that's always a good one. And Dita Hedman, when she used to walk onto Hot, 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 was always eventful for myself and the referees because she'd come and dance towards us and, and sort of encourage us to join in which was often tricky. <laughs> the referees would certainly spot that in the rotor, right? Who's got Dita? Who has to dance today? So those kind of walk-ons are, are always enjoyable for sure. And if you had to put together a, a top five, what would be in there? Well, Bobby's number one. Tony O'Shea. I think Ted Hankey. One I have to mention, whether you call it a favourite or one that annoys you, but either way, it's iconic, is the Makuru Suzuki Baby Shark one. Because <laughs> I have to take part responsibility for that. Um, she sang it at a karaoke in Bridlington. And and we said there, because she'd qualified for the lakeside, we said, well, you have to use it at lakeside. You have to. So she sent through a sort of Japanese rock song. And Anthony Dundas did a mix of the two songs. So it opens with an oriental Japanese kind of track and then phases into Baby Shark. <laughs> And being in that arena in 2019 when she won the tournament and her walking onto that, that has to be up there as one of my favourites. I think that one, that's definitely in the camp of the song annoyed me, but I also, I think it was quite funny and everyone seemed to have fun with it, so I quite enjoyed that yes. one. I think, it, I think it fits into both caps, doesn't it? And obviously you mentioned that one there, but were there any other specific songs that really stick in the mind? Well, there, there's a lot of it that people don't see. Maybe a bit more now with the way that things uploaded to YouTube and, and the like of what happens during the breaks. The lakeside anthems are often the ones that we play when we're not playing darts. The introduction of the commercial channels that came in during my time as MC, it may be frustrating that the breaks are inserted in the matches and people who are used to lakeside for so many years on the BBC found that a little bit different. But what it did for the show added a lot because it gave the DDJ and myself time to really interact with the audience and have fun. So songs like Delilah that I dubbed the, the Welsh National Anthem when we're in the lakeside and 500 Miles for the Scots, Sweet Caroline, 
those kind of songs, which are cheesy and fun, the party at Lakeside, especially in the evenings, with those kind of songs playing, If I, even now, if I hear any of those songs, you know, just on TV, on the radio, my mind immediately goes to Lakeside. One of my favourite sessions during the week, certainly in more recent years, was always that opening session on a Saturday. But for you, was there a particular session during the week that really, you know, got your hairs on end? Yeah, I think the Friday was my favourite hmm. because it was the men's quarterfinals and ladies' semi-finals day. So if you're there for that day, you're guaranteed to see the champion and you're going to see a lot of darts. I think 2018 summed it up in the men's competition, all four quarterfinals went 5-4. And each of the matches had a completely different story, but they all went 5-4. And the atmosphere just cranked up, cranked up, cranked up through the day. And with the ladies' semi-finals combined with that, I honestly believe that's the best atmosphere I've experienced at Lakeside in, in 2018. Just so many brilliant games back-to-back. And I think the final game that evening, if I'm not mistaken, was Wayne Warren against Mark McGeaney. Hmm. And there were a lot of vocal sort of, you know, the audience got so involved. It was so dramatic at the end of what had already been this amazing day. So, yeah, that, that would be one that certainly sticks in my memory. That leads into a question I had on Twitter. Uh, what's the best atmosphere you can recall from the Lakeside? Well, I, I think that the culmination of that tournament. I don't know why one year is singled out in my mind of the six I emceed. But 2018 just seemed louder just seemed McGinley played Durant in the final and the day before it was Anastasia de Bromislava and Lisa Ashton in the ladies final take a look at those walk-ons on YouTube it's so loud it's so atmospheric I don't know why that year kind of raised the bar because it was always a great atmosphere in all the years I've been there I mean Andy Fordham when he won in 2004 that atmosphere was probably as far as everybody cheering for one man maybe that was the, the, the <laughs> it, Paul Mervyn King it just felt like the whole world wanted Andy to win and that's no disrespect to Mervyn because I think even Mervyn got caught up in the emotion and, and how much of a people's champion Andy was so I think the atmosphere there for cheering on one person was strong but the atmosphere overall in 2018 just seemed to be magical Obviously, over the years as MC, a lot of people have probably asked you for selfies and photos and so on, but have you ever had any weird requests from the Lakeside crowd? I have, of course. I mean, yes, all kinds of photos, videos, propositions, you name it. I mean, I've even I've even hosted a, a wedding oh. on stage. Yes. Yes, Mark Daniels and Zoe, who were Lakeside regulars, actually wanted to have their wedding at the Lakeside. And because of the, they wanted to do it during Dance Week. Now, the Lakeside, maybe understandably because of everything else going on, said it wasn't possible. But I was told that there was this couple that were engaged and wanted to be married at Lakeside. So we had quite a long break between men's semi-final and ladies' final. So I set it up with the DJ to play the White Wedding and to bring them onto the stage. So I actually conducted a mock wedding on the hockey of the Lakeside for the two people for Mark and Zoe yeah so that's a, that, that's probably a real strange rare one that happened at Lakeside but in the same way everybody embraced it we've had proposals on stage as well um, yeah really great moments like that and that's all the parts that we obviously don't do on the television mm. but as, as well as being the MC to introduce the matches I'm also housemaster there so there's a lot of interaction with the audience the whole day 
that I, that I do. All the birthdays, the dedications, it's almost like being, you know, in sync with the DJ as much as you are with the darts. It's great stuff and so many photos. I mean, they stand down the front of that stage and you could be there the whole break. You know, the fans are such good fun. The outfits are amazing. There's a couple more Twitter questions I wanted to go through. One from Daniel O'Connor. What's your favourite women's game from the lakeside? Mm, good question. Well, um, one that just came to mind immediately when you, you asked was um, when Anastasia de Bromislova, she'd won a title, she went to the PDC and then she returned to the BDO and played at Lakeside in 2012. And she played Trina Gulliver in the semi-final, who was, of course, the all-conquering, at that time, uh, nine times champion. So the head-to-head between them, they were both, in effect, defending champions because Anastasia never defended her title and Trina was the champion. So the build-up to that match, there was a big rivalry between the two. A lot of words said, not not necessarily by them, but around the match. It seemed quite controversial. There have been some things in the press. It just was spicy. That was the game I looked forward to the most with two players I really, really like, both on stage and as friends. So that was a real favourite of mine in 2012. Um, Anastasia won that and went on to win the title. But I think the most romantic match of all, men's or women's, has to be the 20... I'm trying to get my years right, 2016 final between Dieter Hedman and Trini Gulliver. Mm. Because I knew when introducing them and going back on to give the trophy, we were going to have the story of all stories. It was either going to be finally Dieter Hedman becoming Lakeside World Champion or it was going to be Trina Gulliver becoming a 10 times world champion when it never looked likely that she would ever win the title again. So there was always that story behind it. It wasn't the greatest match. Both players would agree on that. It was nervy. But in terms of being momentous, I think that's one of the great moments in Lakeside history of Trina claiming her 10th world title. You've touched on the next two questions I'm going to ask you a little bit already, but one from Charlie Gray. What's your favourite ever Lakeside final? Well, I think I've mentioned a few and they're favourites for different reasons. As a viewer... The most favourite was the, 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 the Phil Taylor-Mike Gregory final, without a doubt. For Mike Gregory to have six darts to win the title and Phil Taylor to win in a sudden death leg, that alone makes it a standout, doesn't it? Going through the years, as a spotter, and for the atmosphere in the room and feeling in, in the commentary box, earlier on we mentioned the Clarkson win and the Adams win over Nixon, mm. but I think the 9 final between Hankey and O'Shea was also at that level because they're such big characters and lakeside favourites, the two of them. The atmosphere in the room was so strong for both players. That made it a real atmospheric match and a great match as well. So that as a spotter was a real highlight. And then I guess as the MC and the drama of it all, the recent one between Glenn Durant and Mark McGinney, because again, Mark actually had two darts to win the title himself. And Glenn managed to defend his title to win his second in 2018. I mean, I can go on, as you know by now. I can talk about I could talk about all the Lakeside finals, but those stick in my mind as a TV viewer, you know, as a spotter and as the MC. Another final I want to mention because it's the only final in the men's competition that I've actually watched live in the venue. I didn't used to attend every single day before the 2001 final, the John Boy one. 
I saw that final against Ted Hankey, who of course was the champion from the famous 2000 win. And I think that was the birth almost of the Ted Hankey with the demons coming out. He was always very calm, very quiet, Ted, in terms of his match play. And I don't know if you recall that final, but suddenly Ted, halfway through, turned into <laughs> the kind of emotional Ted that we now know and have seen many times on the Lakeside stage and on other stages. He seemed nervous, despite playing well early on. John Boy was sensational, wasn't he? It's almost forgotten how well John played that year. Oh, definitely. I know. I know. When I spoke to him, he said that you know Ted, he'd never lost to Ted, and it had got Ted a bit riled up in the the players' room beforehand. And I think the Ted you got in that final was a Ted that you'd not really seen before, and then obviously became the Ted that was so marketable in a sense for for years to come with the, the old entrance and everything. Definitely very animated. We love it. <clears throat> I think the one that stands out for me as well would be when Scott Mitchell won the title in 2015. Um, because I've spoken to both him and Martin Adams and they both recall the moment when Scott hit the winning double, turned round and then didn't know what to do and said to Martin, what do I do? And Martin, you know, I'm not going to repeat it, but basically said, give it a large one. And uh, Scott lobbed the slotty dog in the crowd. Someone chucked it back and it hit him in the face. So that that kind of that match was quite an epic. And then that final couple of minutes and the celebration always sticks in my mind as well. It does me as well. And I think those two days. I mean, it's another match I wanted to mention. Um, I think in my six years of MCing there, the best match I saw was the Adams Durham semi final. Mm. So I think that would be the one where I walked on stage and felt we've just witnessed something truly magical on the Lakeside stage. You know, Glenn Adars to beat Martin Martin into his, you know, another final. And then going into that final, you're almost thinking, well, you can't live up to the day before. And maybe the standard wasn't quite as high as that semi-final, but the drama was. And the one five eight that Scott Mitchell took out in the final set will always be the best three darts he ever threw. Um, that, that, that goes without saying. Yes, the celebrations afterwards, it was almost that Pat Cash at Wimbledon kind of thing, wasn't it? With Scott clambering up to his dad in the, in the crowd, a magical moment. We loved looking back at that. I was stood very close to that. and it was I, In moments like that, of course, I have to speak on the microphone. I have to keep my own emotions in check. There have been a lot of moments at Lakeside when you mustn't get caught up in the actual emotion of the moment. But that was one I was close to getting, you know, <laughs> a tear in the eye. What would you say, putting it all together, was your favourite tournament? Maybe a strange answer, but I'd have to say 1993. Because mm. that was the one that I recorded, and I think that's the one that lives with me. That's the, that's the one I mentioned earlier, mm. where as a fan, I sort of decided I'm investing in this sport. I recorded every match from that, and there weren't tournaments back-to-back there. That was the last one pre-split. That was the first one pre-split, that I, and I didn't know that at the time. Um, 1993 was probably the one that stands out for me. I watched it over and over again on VHS as a kid, and I even did a school project on it. We could pick any subject we wanted, and I picked arts. So that 1993 embassy, as it was, was the one I look back on the most. And it was the one where I first saw Bobby. He reached the semi-finals. Um, it had all of the great players from both sides of the, what would be the divide. So Steve Beaton had that run to the semi-finals. Uh, John Lowe won the title. It wasn't a great final, but Alan Warren through that tournament was so good. So yeah, lots of memories from 93. And I guess I would have to say, if I can give two answers, and I'm not just saying this in hindsight, 2019 was really special. Mm. Because I had the feeling it would be the last. 
I knew there was backstage unrest. I knew that things were looking to move on. So I went into 2019 thinking to myself, I think this is my last year, and I think this is the last year at Lakeside. So every single match and every single session, I really took it in and embraced it. So I'd have to say 2019 is my absolute favourite. I loved it. It was a party for nine days. <laughs> It did certainly feel like the, the end of an era, that one. Something I, I did want to touch on, I saw the other day you shared the video package that you helped put together before the 2016 final, and it was the 30 years of, you know, 30 years at the lakeside. And isn't there a story behind that, that you almost missed Martin Adams's nine dart attempt in the semis? Yes, we were putting the final edit together, and I was doing a, checking a few voiceovers and checking a few facts, and if there were certain lines of commentary... So I'm in a production truck backstage. There's a tiny, tiny screen amongst all of this edit thing of the live broadcast. And all I'm keeping my eye on is when uh, there was an interval in that match. And I just had to go out and just, you know, if there's anything I have to say. So all I was doing was checking the score. And suddenly I look up and I see this huge reaction from Martin and the crowd. There's no volume on it. I can just see that something's occurred. So what could have happened for me, as fan and MC, I could have completely missed the Nine Data at Lakeside by being working in a production truck. I'm not saying I'm glad that Martin missed, but I, I would have been devastated not to have experienced it because I spent as much time as I could being in the arena and watching, especially in the latter stages, once all the work was done with the referees and all of the walk-ons and the parades and all those kind of things. I used to try and spend as much time as I could in the arena during the long games at the end so I could enjoy the atmosphere myself. So yes, I nearly missed the nine data. I mean, as it stands, Martin Adams missed it. And, uh, and of course, Marco, who was refereeing, he would have loved that to have gone in. <laughs> and, and I know Marco also lost the uh, the nine data in the Dutch Open final as well. But, um... Yes, he did. We won't mention that. <laughs> Bless him. Uh, another question, this obviously isn't related so much to the past, but the future and your, your current role with the, the WDF. Are the WDF likely to, to take one of their majors to the lakeside in the future? Now, all I can say is, wouldn't it be really nice if they did? I mean, I would be lying to you if I said that the avenue hadn't been explored. But with the way things are, not just in the world, but within darts as well, there is so much on the commercial side and the promotion side that needs sorting out for any of that kind of thing to happen. From the WDF's point of view, all I can say is, hand on heart, is we are working on a daily basis to secure the next WDF World Championship. And to secure that, we need to have things right with sponsors, with a broadcaster and with a host venue. And all of those things need pulling together, don't they? Hmm. So it's impossible for me to give you a yes or a no. As you've heard for the last near an hour, if you ask in my opinion of where I would like any future World Championship to be, of course I would say the lakeside. Well, I know when I spoke to, to Nick just before Christmas, he was saying that you guys have a policy, you don't want to announce anything until it's, until it's factual, so your answer doesn't surprise me, but... As I agree with you, it would be wonderful it was at the lakeside. A couple there's last just, things. There's just too many things, Andrew, to, hmm. to, to, to finalise before we can make any kind of announcement. So I would be wrong to say, mm -hmm. yes, it's at the lakeside, or no, it's not at the lakeside, because I cannot give you the answer. 
Yeah, no, definitely. That's fine. A couple of last bits from me. You've but alluded to, to this already, but what would be the one lasting memory of the, the lakeside for you? The fans, the audience, without a doubt. If I think of lakeside, the first thing I think of isn't actually a dart being thrown. It's the feeling of the atmosphere in the room. It's the atmosphere. That, that's the, oh, it's the feeling, whether there's a darts match on or it's in the breaks. It's just the buzz in the room, the, the, the passion that everyone has for the game. It is really, really special. And uh, we've had some of our greatest great times we've had on the stage. There are moments, I'll give you a good example. Martin Adams, for the first year, doesn't qualify. He's done 25 lakesides, doesn't qualify. So in 2019, 25 years after his debut, we secretly plan with the BDO, with uh, Wayne and Sue, to make a, with Sue rather, to make a presentation for Martin. Doing that walk-on of Martin Adams, was greater than any walk-on I've ever actually done for him play, because of the way the audience sort of treated him when he came on stage, you know, to appreciate what he'd given the venue and given the tournament. Hmm. So it's those kind of moments that live with me. Hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah, definitely. It's how revered the players are and how much sort of they're given from the fans. I, I, I really love that about the Lakeside. And what was it like for you, I mean, it seems weird that it was a, a year ago, what was it like for you last year not being involved with it in, in any capacity? Oh, I'm not sure I have the words, to be honest. Because I, I couldn't, firstly, just, it's a bit like this week with nothing being on, but last year was, my immediate thought was to say heartbreaking. Maybe that's another word. I wasn't sacked. I decided to leave, so I can't bemoan that and I sincerely wished everyone well that was involved because it's not easy the, the players and the officials had a big job on with the transition from in the lakeside and going to a new venue but yeah it was very difficult for me very difficult indeed because it was it's been part of my life for so long and something I was so passionate about I cared about it wasn't just that it was a job I cared so I, I actually visited the venue for one day and I wasn't going to and I sort of did it and in some way, I wish I hadn't, because I didn't find it an enjoyable experience, because it, it hurt, it was difficult. Hmm. But the fans were lovely, the officials were lovely, everybody was very kind, whoever I saw, um, the, the referees, there's Jacqueline, the players, everyone was very welcoming, but the fans are getting special, the fans are so lovely, that, that that made it nice to go and visit, but it, it was difficult, Andrew, if I'm honest. Hmm. And in all the, the years you've been watching, what would be your... If you had to pick five games that you could only watch those five games, you know, for, for the rest of your days, what would those five be? Okay, so I mentioned the Martin Adams, Chris Mason quarter final in 1999. That was the best game I saw in that crowd live. Martin led 4 1, he missed nine match darts, it went all the way to a tie break. Mason then misses the dart for the match. Adams goes out on a 160 to save it, one of the best shots I've ever seen. And then in the final, uh, well, it was the tenth leg, but in the last leg of the match, both players end up on double one. You had everything in that game. The semi-final of 2000. Now, everyone talks about the Ted Hackey 170, and rightly so. Iconic moment. The semi-final, again involving Chris Mason. Ted Hankey hits 22 180s in nine sets. It's unheard of. It's still a record that hasn't been beaten. Incredible. So I think that semi-final has to go in. I'm going to stick with another semi-final going back now. The Bobby George comeback against Magnus Karras. Mm. In 
improbable and just one of the greatest performances, never mind about the darts thrown, but just as a human being on that stage. To, to be in the pain that I know Bobby was in and to find the will to somehow come through that game when you're 4-2 down and two legs down in the set. I, I would have to say that one goes in, the, the, the nine legs that Bobby strung off at the end. One, I'm going to run out of matches, I'm sure, because there'll, there'll be a favourite that I've, I've finished out. The Andy, I'm going to name another semi-final, the Andy Fordham semi-final against uh, Raymond Van Barneveld in 2004. Again, Andy, I think 3-0 or 3-1 down. Yeah, 3-0 down. Remember, this was his fifth semi-final. He'd lost the previous four. And he's playing arguably the best player on the planet at that time in that 2004 semi-final in Barney. And to come back the way Andy did again, and the atmosphere around the game spotting that match will, will forever live in the memory. I'm going to kick myself for missing a favourite, aren't I? Because there are so many. I mean, I suppose in a nostalgic way, now that we've lost both players, the Eric Bristow and Jockey Wilson game is a great watch, isn't it? The 1989 mm. final. The drama of that game. The, the, the jockey at one point miscounts when he's throwing for the title. So I think that moment, he goes for double tops when he wants double 18. Eric checking out. And it's the physical reactions of the two players. I don't think, Bobby aside maybe, that there's ever been two more charismatic dart players as Eric and Jockey. So I think watching that and the magic of the old lakeside and the, looking at the atmosphere and it looks a lot darker and a lot more rowdy at that time. I love that match. The match saver from Bristow on the ball when Jockey misses the 1-5-6 and then Jockey dropping to his knees when he wins the tournament. There are so many, Andrew. I could go on and on and on. Well, I think that's a pretty great five to choose. So there'd be no complaints from me watching those games over and over. And just to, to finish up, I interviewed Ray Stubbs last year about, you know, working at the lakeside for, you know, many years doing the darts. And he said to him, his ultimate thing of, of what Lakeside meant to him was that it was the biggest party you could imagine to, to start the new year. Asking that to you, what ultimately does Lakeside mean to you? Well, in, in career terms, it's my greatest achievement to walk on that stage and it, just hold it together, let alone host six world championships. If I'd done one, I would have been proud of it. So if you're at a darts MC or referee, that has to be the pinnacle of your career, to, 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 to stand on the world stage and introduce these great players and be part of a history that you've embraced for so long. But bear in mind, if I wasn't the MC or the spotter, Lakeside would be the venue that I would have now visited that many times from 1994. It would have been part of my life year in, year out anyway. So Ray Stubbs, great guy, by the way, is absolutely right that it is the biggest party that gets your year going. I would have been there in the crowd, dancing along to the walk-ons, cheering on the matches and having fun in the breaks, the same as all the fans are now. You, you, you hear cliches, you know, of, of dance family and that kind of thing. But the atmosphere in that room, everybody's friends, there's never any trouble, everybody's there for the same reason. It feels like a New Year's Eve party. For nine days. That's how it feels. Because everyone's there to, just to have fun. There's never any awkwardness regarding who you're cheering for. There's never been players that have been booed, apart from Ted Hankey and a pantomime star. There's no animosity in the room. It's, it's maybe, some people call it cheesy, but I just call it nice. 
massive thank you for your time this evening, Richard. Your enthusiasm is every bit as infectious as I thought it would be. And it, it's been a pleasure talking to you about all your, your great memories over the years. It's been my pleasure. And I only hope that one day we all get back to the home of well darts, the Lakeside.